Thanks for downloading the UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the UCD Humanities Institute. For more information, go to www.ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, the second of two podcasts from the Ireland Slavery Anti-Slavery Empire Conference, which took place in UCD on the 24th and 25th of October 2013. This episode features a keynote lecture by Professor Richard Blackett of Vanderbilt University. His paper was entitled The Underground Railroad and the Struggle Against Slavery. Uh, When I was a kid growing up in Trinidad, uh, we had an old neighbor, a lady named Rose Holder, who we used to beseech every evening to come over to our house and sit on the porch or the veranda or the gallery, as we call it in Trinidad, and tell us stories. Uh, Rose used to tell us stories that my five sisters and I, uh, that usually ended up with us having nightmares. Uh, But the point of the stories that she told is that those stories uh, tell us a great deal about the people that they they cover. There's no doubt that these stories tend to fade over time. The trick for the teller is to find ways to remember. How to remember is one of the major problems confronting historians, keen not to just understand the workings, in this case, as I was, of the Underground Railroad, but to reconnect with the enslaved who risked life and lib, who decided to leave the places and the people they knew for an unknown future in an unknown place. The act of leaving can tell us a great deal about the many ways they endured and resisted being crushed by the hammer of oppression. But it also tells us something about their passion for freedom and their notion of rights. By zeroing on those acts, that is, by looking at the actions of the enslaved who decided to abandon the plantation, we can glimpse, if only for a bit, a brief period, the reasons behind and the consequences of their actions, or to put it another way, the politics of their actions. It is clear, as I hope the evidence will show, that to borrow an apt phrase from Edward Thompson, those who, those who took flight had a general notion of rights and a passionate desire for freedom. The activities of the Underground Railroad in communities of both, on both sides of the slavery divide are replete with such stories and provide a canvas on which to, stre- to sketch the broad outlines of the fugitive slaves' impact on the struggle against slavery. It is in these communities, whether on the eastern shore of Maryland or on the capital city of Pennsylvania, where these struggles played out, that we can come to appreciate the nature of this struggle. Ever since Gaul, this is my classical high school now, ever since Gaul was divided into three parts by Caesar, (laughs) what you say? Historians have felt an obligation to do the same in anything we write. It's always, we make three points. I want to take a different tack and to tell four stories, which I hope will provide novel insights 
into the working of the Underground Railroad, the people who drove it, and its impact on the debate over the future of slavery in the United States. One caveat, much of what I have to say is limited to the decade of the 1850s, not because what happened in the years before is unimportant, but rather because the passage of the Fugitive Slave Law in 1850 changed the terms of the debate over slavery by providing for the first time in the nation's history a national system of enforcement, one which had the full backing of the federal government. As a result, slave escapes came to assume greater political significance. Recapturing those who ran away became, for many, a measure of the country's willingness to live up to its constitutional obligation to return what we call under the Constitution fugitives from labor. Failure to do so, many were convinced, only chipped away at the tenuous links that kept the country together. Story one. In early 1853, Henry W. Banks, described by his master as a clever and intelligent slave, escaped from Front Royal in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. And this is the time where I want to you to imagine my PowerPoint. <laughs> so that is right here. <laughs> it is clear from the evidence that Banks had been planning his escape for some time. First, he persuaded his master, Edwin Massey, to hire him out to William F. M. Buck, ostensibly so he could be near his wife. Soon after his move, Massey got wind that Banks was planning to escape. Buck, the person who had hired him, did not give much credence to the story and persuaded Massey that Banks was settled and content. Months later, in the wake of another rumored escape, Massey made plans to sell Banks to a slave trader. Once again, Buck, who had hired him, came to his rescue. He was so convinced that Banks was set settled that he arranged to have the terms of the hire changed by providing Massey, the owner of Banks, with a guarantee of $800 should Banks escape before the expiration of his contract. Not a good idea. Folks in Front Royal must have been surprised when in February, 18, the, the least likely month to undertake an escape, Buck received a letter from Banks, postmarked New York City. The letter opens with a conventional salutation. I find myself in a position, Banks wrote, to address you a few lines, and I hope that they find you in as good health as I find myself. <laughs> Banks. Banks asked to be remembered to family and friends, but made it absolutely clear he had no intention of returning. It is a curious letter, for it lays out for Buck Banks's route of escape. It, uh, first, it says, he went north through Washington County, located close to the Pennsylvania state line. Rather than cross into the free territory at this point, Banks, chose to go southeast to Baltimore, where he spent two days before going on to Philadelphia, where he rested for one night, leaving the next day for New York City. That's what Banks said he did. Banks also declared his intention of moving on to either Albany or Buffalo, New York, which is way up north. There's no doubt the letter was meant to confuse potential slave catchers who Banks knew would be hot on his heels. He could not have taken the route he had laid out and reached New York in two days. 
The Dates letter was written two days after the Dates letter was written to Buck. Neither Massey nor Buck was fooled by the ruse. Buck immediately contract, contracted with a slave catcher business in Washington County in an effort to cut banks off before he reached free soil. But unfortunately, the catchers were away on business. Convict, convinced banks had followed a popular escape route to Philadelphia where fugitives found refuge and support in the black community and the underground railroad run by William Still, Buck sent his stepbrother, Thomas Ashby, in search of banks. Ashby followed the normal procedure by first contacting the commissioner responsible under the fugitive slave law to see what he could do. The commissioner put him in contact with an experienced deputy marshal who had 15 years been tracking down fugitive slaves. Together, they combed the areas of the city that they knew fugitives in which fugitives from shelter, but they could not find their man. It was, Ashby lamented, like looking for a needle in a haystack. There were so many places to hide, he said, and what he said, and he quotes, such a variety of faces that try as he may, he could not, he could make no headway. Before Ashby left empty-handed, the deputy marshal promised to hire a few black spies who knew the lay of the land. He even reported he had received word that Banks had left the city but would return shortly. The trail went cold. When in April, Buck received a second letter from Banks. This one postmarked from a ship on the Allegheny River near Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, announcing he was on his way to California. It is not clear why Banks felt the need to write another letter, unless he was simply thumbing his nose on Buck and Massey. Alternatively, it is possible that in their search in Philadelphia, either Ashby or the deputy marshal had gotten uncomfortably close to Banks and so forced him to flee. Neither Buck nor Massey were fooled, was fooled by Banks' claim that he was on his way to California. The ruse, Massey insisted, showed that Banks was being aided by someone who was familiar with routes taken by settlers moving west. Massey was also convinced that Banks was hiding in a major urban area which provided him with greater cover than would a rural community where there were few blacks. But the second letter provided Buck with a potentially new and crit critical opening. A number of former slaves from the Front Royal area who were manumitted some years earlier had settled in Washington County, just south of Pittsburgh. A brother of Banks also lived in the area. It seems reasonable to the slaveholders that Banks was heading there. Buck sent a slave catcher to the area, but he, like Ashby, also returned empty-handed. If Buck was in the area, he had once again given them the slip. Nothing more was heard from Banks until November, when Buck received a third letter <laughs> informing him of the former slave's safe arrival in Hamilton, Canada. In a final curious twist of the episode, Banks offered to repay Buck the $800 security he was obliged to forfeit as a result of his escape. The offer is most unusual. It is true that slaves frequently wrote their masters from the safety of Canada, expressing their defiance and accomplishments and daring their master to come after them. 
They had arrived in free soil, and there they planned to stay. None of the letters I have found made such a gesture of possible reconciliation. Writing in May 1859, Jacob Whitney's was a fairly typical letter. He decided, he told his former master, and this is a quote, to take his feet, field for Canada, and let your conscience feel it in your pocket. It is a wonderful <laughs> phrase. Banks chose to express his defiance differently. He might be willing to offer such gestures of reconciliation, but as he said in his first letter, he had absolutely no intention of returning to Front Royal. While the bank's escape speaks to the vulnerability of the slave system, especially in the Upper South, it also provides an opportunity to explore what Henry Bibb himself, a fugitive from Kentucky, aptly called the working of self-emancipation. Both Massey and Buck were convinced that other slaves and free blacks in and around Front Royal were privy to Banks's plan to escape and had aided him. There is even a suggestion that Banks had communicated with friends and family by letter and that they in turn had informed him that Ashby was on his way to Philadelphia. The slaveholders were convinced there had been an exchange of letters between Banks and his black supporters, and that local postmasters had either not been vigilant enough or had colluded with Banks and his friends by delivering letters to them rather than following the usual procedure and first passing all letters uh, addressed to slaves to their masters. But Massey may have been barking up the wrong tree. After all, Banks was literate, and so could have written passes for himself which would have eased his passage to free territory. But it is equally clear that Banks, like so many other slaves who escaped, kept in touch with family and friends they left behind by letter, either through the normal postal system or by courier. As far as masters were concerned, this was an intractable problem one that they, they tried largely and successfully to control through local laws and by pressuring postmasters to ensure that letters addressed to slaves were intercepted and read. There may have been other ways of communicating between the enslaved and family and friends they left behind, but there's little doubt that by the early 1850s, as the postal system became more efficient with the establishment of cheap postal charges, that the enslaved and those who found freedom in the North and Canada were able to exploit the system to stay in touch. But writing such letters was risky and dangerous business. Discovery usually spelled trouble. It was the discovery of a letter to the Reverend Jacob Curtis, a free black from his son of the same name, and a slave who had escaped, who had early escaped to Canada, that raised suspicion among authorities in Cambridge, Maryland. PowerPoint. <laughs> they had long suspected that Green had been involved in helping slaves to escape from the Eastern Shore. The letter from the young Green informed his fa father of his successful and uneventful arrival in Canada, the friends he had met and made along the way, and suggested that the time was right to get the couple slaves with whom they had been working out of Maryland. The letter also showed that the Reverend Green, his father, had made a recent visit to Canada. The raid on Green's house also turned up a map tracing possible escape routes out of Maryland, a train table, and a copy of Uncle Tom's cabin. 
In spite of the existence of the letter, the map, the train schedule, the authorities failed to show Green's connection to the increase, to the recent increase of slave escapes from the area. But they temporarily managed to curtail the activities of the support system that Green had successfully organized by convicting him under an obscure 1841 state law that banned free blacks from possessing abolitionist literature and sentenced him for possession of Uncle Tom's Cabin to 10 years in the state penitentiary. Books matter. One other escape, this one from Louisville, Kentucky, will help to drive home the point both of the system's vulnerability and its vigilance. The case involved Rachel, a 20-year-old slave of J.C. Whitley, and here I'm bringing, because you guys might fall asleep, a bit of sex into the story. She had escaped to Canada in 1856 with the assistance of F. George Cope, a well-known white grocer. Rachel, had, Rachel did washing for the bachelor Cope, but their relationship clearly reached beyond the washing tub. Rachel was a frequent visitor. I know it's kind of, it's like a jacuzzi scene, isn't it? <laughs> Rachel was a frequent visitor to Cope's Cope's shop and home, and according to prying eyes, spent an inordinate amount of time in his rooms. Cope later admitted that Rachel was, as he, pre as he put it very poetically, his wife in heaven. <laughs> that doesn't mean she was dead. It means that there was some kind of metaphysical. <coughs> Cope had assisted Rachel in her escape with the understanding he would later join her in Canada once this excitement had blown over. But Cope may have been deceived. A month later, Rachel's owner visited her in Canada in an effort to persuade her to return. Rachel declined the kind offer, uh, but she did hand over Copes's letter to her former owner. These letters would form the basis of the owner's suit against Cope for aid in, in the escape of his slave. When the case did finally come to, to trial in 1859, the jury deadlocked, according to one wag, because there were too many amalgamating and kidnapping difficulties. Where's our amalgamating <laughs> man? There you are. And, and the second trial, months later, Cope was found not guilty, by which time he had languished in prison for two years. Story two. In spring 1855, as the brig Young America was about to lift anchor for, for Jamaica, Philip Nettles, a young free black man, came on board in the company of a man and a woman who are not described, but the tone of the report su suggests they may have been white. Nettles had been hired on as a cook for the voyage to Jamaica. Under interrogation, Nettles... <laughs> Even before the ship had cleared the Chesapeake uh, Bay, it became clear to the captain, a man called Samuel Rogers, that nettles could not cook. <laughs> it's a slight problem. Under interrogation, nettles finally had to admit that he was not who he said he was. He was, in fact, James Anderson, a Baltimore slave. 
Rather than put Anderson on shore and run the risk of having to explain to the authorities why he had not established the identity of Anderson before he set sail, Rogers decided to clap Anderson in chains and take him with him to Jamaica. That was a terrible mistake. Once the ship dropped anchor in Savannah Lamar in Jamaica, rumors quickly spread that there was a slave on board. A crowd numbering more than 300, many of them women, rode out to the ship in canoes and forcibly removed Anderson, who was immediately taken before a local magistrate. Within days, Anderson was freed. The decision to free Anderson was greeted by a firestorm of protests from Robert Harrison, the American consulate, a Virginian, who saw the freeing of Anderson as a direct assault on the nation he represented and the institution of slavery which he cherished. Harrison saw the decision to free Anderson as yet another example of the work of an international abolitionist alliance made up of black Americans and the British henchmen who were working assiduously to destroy American slavery. Anderson had no such concern. Like Henry Banks, he had devised a plan of escape, ostensibly aided by a white man and a woman who came on board the ship with him and who left before it sailed. But one should not underestimate the amount of planning that went into the escape driven by Anderson's vision of a future away from slavery in Maryland. When asked by the Jamaican magistrate why he had boarded the ship, Anderson spoke for many freedom seekers. He said, I have been kept in bondage. And hearing that this was a free country, I tried to get here. But there's another feature of the Anderson case that provides an insight into the workings of the Underground Railroad, and that is the speed with which black communities came to the assistance of fugitives in danger of recapture. Reports of the rescue give the impression that the folks of Savannah Lamar who had rescued Anderson may have acted spontaneously, but that is, that is belied by the history of similar rescues of slaves from American ships. I have not been able to determine if the Jamaicans created any organizations to facilitate such rescues, but in the United States, such organizations were common in black communities in the free states. There were also complaints by slaveholders of the existence of support organizations among free blacks and slaves in slave states. Henry Banks, his owners were in, in convinced, was assisted by such an organiz organization in Front Royal. There's more than enough evidence of such organizations in such eastern port cities as Norfolk and Baltimore, where black seamen and stevedores played a vital role in facilitating slave escapes. One Norfolk editor even warned, even warned of the existence of clandestine organizations among those urban slaves who had carved off a life of quasi-freedom for themselves and who were active in aiding those who wish to escape. The black community is central to our understanding of story three. In August 1850, as Congress was pulling the, putting the final touches to the fugitive slave law, eight slaves from Clark County in Virginia, Shenandoah Valley, not far from Henry Bank, where Henry Banks was enslaved, arrived in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, which is right <laughs> here, followed closely by their masters and a group of slave catchers. Three of the eight 
Samuel Wilson, George Brooks, and another known only as Billy, decided to break their journey in the city while the others chose to move on further north. The choice to stay was not unusual. The state capital especially, and the area more generally, had long been a favored location for those escaping slavery from Maryland and Virginia. The area was close enough to their former homes, which meant they could keep in touch with family and friends. The city's black community also had a reputation for protecting those who came amongst them. It was estimated that at the time that there were 150 fugitives living there and that over the years they had established for themselves a life in the city. The decision by the three to stay in the city proved disastrous. Soon after their arrival, their masters and then had them arrested not as fugitives from labor, but for stealing a few horses in their bid to escape. The three were brought before a state judge who ruled in their favor. There was no evidence the judge ruled that the horses were stolen, only that they had been used to effect an escape, at the end of which they were released and reclaimed by their owners. The three were represented by two prominent local white lawyers with strong anti-slavery credentials hired by the black community. The details of what followed are unclear. When the slaveholders attempted to seize the three in spite of the judge's ruling, they resisted. Blacks in the crowd gathered outside the court intervened. In the ensuing melee, a number of blacks were injured, as was Wilson and, and Brooks. But in the scuffle, Billy was hustled away by about 20 blacks who provided him with a pistol and got him safely out of town and to freedom in Canada. A number of arrests were made, including blacks who were suspected of taking part in the assault, as well as the slave-catching party. But by the date of the judge's ruling, the slaveholders had another recourse available to them, the recently signed Fugitive Slave Law, which had established commissioners in each county whose responsibility it was to adjudicate fugitive slave cases. Typically, those who held these posts were political appointees committed to enforcement of the new law in spite of widespread local opposition. The Harrisburg commissioner, a man called Richard McAllister, was typical of those who served in the position. A Democrat with strong connections to the South, he would over the next three years rule unfailingly in favor of the claimants. Following the state judge's ruling, McAllister issued a writ of arrest for the three under the terms of the new fugitive slave law. The black community immediately rallied, packing the commissioner's office and keeping vigil in the street outside. Refusing to allow any legal representation, McAllister ruled in favor of the slaveholders and called out a posse to ensure that their slave safe return to Virginia. But the commissioner faced a quandary. Under the, uh, an 1847 state law, no state prison could be used to hold fugitives while they awaited rendition. But with the assurance that the new law would cover all expenses of rendition, McAllister's posse was large and intimidating enough to ensure the return of Wilson and Brooks. 
While slaveholders in search of their escape slave found a sympathetic officer in Harrisburg, the black community by their actions did all they could to make life difficult for the commissioner and slave catchers. Over the next 15 months, McAllister heard seven additional cases ruling in favor of the claimants in each. At least the law in Harrisburg was being enforced, but even here, the black community continued to challenge the commissioners and the law's authority to return slaves, both by assisting, in spite of the law's prohibition, that the suspects be given a legal representation. This they buttressed by constant agitation that, on many occasions, threatened open violence. In one instance, they attempted to set fire to the hotel where the slave catchers were holding the slave prior to his return. Why all the suspected slaves brought before McAllister were returned, the social and political tensions the law and its enforcement generated in the city would lead, by 1853, to the electoral defeat of all those who had worked with the commissioner as marshals. McAllister also fell, fell out of favor. Uh, even his vestry refused to re-elect him. He reluctantly resigned his position as commissioner at the end of 1853 and headed for a new life in Kansas where he would work with local authorities to curb the activities of a man called John Brown. The calculus of fugitive slave cases in Harrisburg would seem to suggest as many historians have, that the law was enforced successfully. That was undoubtedly true in the years between the appointment and the departure of McAllister. But we need to keep in mind, as we assess the significance of these local events, the fact that even at the height of McAllister's success, fugitive slaves continued to arrive and to tra travel through Harrisburg safely. The extent of that flow is impossible to calculate because it happened out of sight of the authorities and so is largely lost to history. What we do know is there were no other incidents in the six years between the departure of McAllister and the capture of another fugitive slave in 1859. In the latter case, the fugitive was quickly removed to Philadelphia in an effort to avoid the ire of the black community. But they followed, as it were, sending witnesses to the hearing and claiming successfully that the accused had been a member of the community long before it was claimed he had escaped. Freed by the Philadelphia commissioner, the fugitive was quickly dispatched to the safety of Canada before the claimant could seek another judgment. Enforcing the law in the years after McAllister's departure had become pal politically unpalatable. The commissioner's callous disregard of community sentiment and the black community's continued resistance to his activity had largely soured the city on the law. One other aspect of the Underground Railroad, namely its reach into the South, leads us to story four. Almost a year to the day before the firing of Fort Sumter and the start of the Civil War, Nathan James, described as a free black, an Al Savage, a slave drayman, took a large pine box to the Adams Express Company in Nashville, Tennessee, and, ar and arranged to have it shipped to someone called Hannah Johnson, very likely a fictitious person in Cincinnati, Ohio, in care of Levy Coffin. A letter was also sent to Coffin asking him to collect the box at the Cincinnati office of the company. 
The box was set by train to Louisville, Kentucky, where it was transferred by ferry across the Ohio River to Jeffersonville, Indiana, and they are placed on a train for Seymour, Indiana, where it was to be transferred to the Cincinnati-bound train. At Seymour, the box was thrown onto the platform. The impact caused the box to shatter and out fell a black man, <laughs> Alex, who, had been, who at that time had been cooped up for 14 hours without food or drink. Alex was taken into custody, sent off to the Louisville jail, and later returned to Nashville. The escape caused considerable excitement locally. The reconfigured book box was put on display at the Adams Express Company where young boys took turns trying to fit themselves into it, and local whites wags tried their hand at doggerels to commemorate the events. What do we know of these individuals? Nathan James, 51, was born in Virginia. Al Savage was a slave of his father, who had hired him out on an annual basis since 1845. Alex was a skilled sheet metal worker. Also a party to the escape was an unnamed white man. And this is all, the white man is always in quotation marks. Whose involvement only added to the mystery. Within a week of his return to Nashville, Alex was brought before magistrate's court in an effort to determine who was involved in the plot. It turned out that James and Alex were members of the same Methodist Episcopal Church. Alex testified he had met the white man many times at the home of Alf Savage. It was the white man who had suggested the means of escape and had offered to help. Before agreeing, Alex consulted James, who confirmed the white man who he knew was experienced in such things. Alex agreed to pay the white man $60, and in addition handed him a silver watch to cover the cost of his escape. That's a lot of money. The white man procured the box and had it sent to James's home where Alex was crated. According to Alex, the white man accompanied the box, <coughs> periodically checking to make sure he was alive, but disappeared once the plot unraveled in Seymour, Indiana. Following the hearing, Savage was sentenced to receive 15 lashes. James was bound over to appear in the next court session, where it was discovered to the surprise of many that he was not a free man, but, but as was thought, but was in fact a slave who had escaped from Virginia some years earlier, and rather than going north, had chosen to settle in Nashville. He was sentenced to serve time in prison, but the length of his sentence is unknown. Not surprisingly, local and regional newspapers thought they saw the hand of the Underground Railroad in the plot. The connection between James, for all intents and purposes, a free man, Savage, who was for, for years had hired himself out and so lived in a state of quasi-freedom, Alex, the skilled slave, and the unknown and therefore mysterious white man, who it was assumed was a northerner, and finally the fact that a box was used reminiscent of the by now landmark flight of Henry Box Brown from Richmond in Virginia in 1848, which still haunted slaveholders, and the fact that the box was addressed to Levy Coffin, the leader of the Underground Railroad in Cincinnati, all suggests that speculation about the involvement of the Underground Railroad was not too far-fetched. 
Escapes such as Alex's demonstrated a degree of planning and coordination, as well as a level of sophistication that deeply troubled the city authorities. It also pointed to the continued vulnerability of slave property. Uh, to use that, what limited resources they had to pay for attempts to reach freedom, the participation of free blacks, who for many represented the Achilles heel of the system, and the difficulty of keeping tabs on the many white northerners who moved freely in and out of the south. But much of, much of the difficulty many recognized was also self-imposed, the system's inability to control slaves who, like Alex, and Al Savage moved about relatively freely in the system and attended church with free blacks and other slaves, thus carving out spaces of relative freedom for themselves in the heart of slavery. Usually after incidences like this, local authorities would crack down on the efforts to close off the spaces of freedom urban slaves and free blacks had created for themselves by limiting their contacts with one another and with working class whites. As a result, there would be a corresponding spike in the enforcement of state and municipal laws restricting such activity. At such times, local newspapers would be filled with reports of efforts to clamp down on these violations of municipal ordinances. But if newspaper court reports are a measure of municipalities' commitment to enforcement, it quickly becomes apparent that, over time, such enforcement invariably eased and slaves and free blacks return to their old activities. At times like these, the authorities would also keep a close watch on the white outsiders, whether they were preachers, teachers, or salesmen, and the many black seamen and riverboat workers who came south. The courts were one of the principal lines of defense. Alex was promptly brought to court, not in the interest of justice, but because the authorities were keen to determine the nature and extent of the conspiracy. Ironically, had the white man been caught, state and municipal laws made no provisions for black men such, an, such as Alex to testify against him. Usually, after dramatic escapes such as Alex's, local politicians called for the passage of new laws or the enforcement of old laws that would allow slaves to testify against whites who were accused of aiding or abetting in escapes. But these calls were never answered, largely because of fears of opening a Pandora's box of uncertainty. Once blacks were allowed, even in such limited circumstances, to testify against whites, there was no denying the likelihood such opportunities could be expanded to include other cases. But southern states did register a measure of success in their efforts to curtail these activities. The annual reports compiled by state penitentiary directors during the 1850s shows a marked increase in the number of those, both black and, black and white, who were imprisoned for enticing, aiding, or abetting slaves to escape. While it is not possible to determine from these reports if those involved came from the South or from the North, as part of the Underground Railroad, they were in most cases born in the North. What then is the significance of these stories? When compared to the number of those held in slavery, which in 1850 stood in excess of 3 million, those who sought their freedom in the North 
Canada, Mexico, the Caribbean, or even the Indian nations of the West were comparatively few. Some historians have estimated that over time, an average of 1,000 slaves escaped annually, a relative drop in the bucket. But the numbers belie their actions' impact on the politics of slavery. What those stories tell us is the need to borrow deeply into local records if we wish to understand the impact escapes had on the politics of slavery. As I have said elsewhere, the politics of scale matters. It helps us to understand, for instance, why following a spike in the number of runaways from Berlin in eastern shores of Maryland, an area whose economy was heavily dependent on slave labor, slaveholders promptly took actions locally and in the state capital to defend their interests. There and elsewhere, they created defense associations to curtail escapes, call conventions to demand that municipal, state, and federal government act to protect their investment and way of life. Much of the rationale and hysteria behind such calls uh, involved the threat of outsiders, be they from the north, or as in the case of the US Council in Jamaica, from an alliance of foreigners, usually the British, and their black and white abolitionist allies. These stories also point to the indisputable fact that it was slaves themselves who took the initiative and in so doing intruded themselves into the debate over the future of slavery, both in the North and in the South. Their actions disrupted local economic and social and political order. When, for instance, in late 1850s, the level of slave escapes from Louisville, Kentucky spiked, the cost of hiring slaves in the city became impossibly prohibitive. As a consequence, the city was forced to enhance its policing apparatus in an effort to curtail the number of escapes. Slaveholders who lost and later reclaimed runaways were faced with a number of untenable options. Should the fugitive once caught be returned to the slave quarters? If so, what impact would the example of a runaway set for the rest of their slaves? Many thought the price of peace on their plantations or in their households too steep and opted instead to sell the runaways down the river. In these stories of self-emancipation, freedom-seeking slaves, such as Henry Banks, also had to calculate the personal cost of their escape, leaving places and people they knew for the uncertainty of the unknown. And the chance of being retaken and either severely punished or sold further south. All that, was all that was factored into their plans of escape. For Henry Banks and all the others who, after such calculations, decided to leave, freedom mattered. Thank you.